I'm very glad you uh, hit that uh, recording button because I was going to say, Greg, hit that fucking recording button because I don't know what's about to come out of me. And <laughs> all right, fuck, all right. Well, man. Back again after over two years. It's time for a special late night edition of News of the Century. Hello, dear listeners, and welcome back to News of the Century, something that I have not said in almost exactly two years at this point. And right away, we already started off wrong, because I thought our last News of the Century was recorded sometime in fall of 2021. But if I just took a moment to look at my own podcast schedule, I would see that the very last Back in Time Plus Space episode is released on July 19th. So it's been longer than two years at this point. Not only did Alex finally put out Castle of the Moon, his big vampire gothic horror book, but Toby literally got done reading it minutes ago, which I think is a record for like recording almost immediately after Toby's experience. And if you can see the look on his face right now, like I've been sitting with this for the better part of a week. Toby has had no time to process at all. So it's and that's just funny. how I like it. I've got my pitch black drink of rum and Coke right here next to me. Oh, I'm I, sorry. You need alcohol right now. I, I, I guess. Yes. Yes, I, I, I do. I'm not surprised. Yeah. What, <laughs> what did I just read? I... Okay, so many revelations. I have zero notes. That's a lie. I have so many notes. Uh, You've been taking notes this entire time. You have far more notes than I have. What Mm. I have aren't like, I have a few notes written down at this point, Mm -hmm. but most of what I have is the fact that I have not been able to stop thinking about this fucking book for Mm. an entire week. My brain keeps latching on to something new. This is the energy I have missed because, you know, when we do our shows on each chapter and chapter, there's a lot of consideration and structure imposed on it. News, we're flying by the seat of our pants and it doesn't get much more by the seat of our pants than this. I have no idea what any of this is, what I'm going to say next, other than holy shit. I'm, I'm for the benefit of the curious... I am going to give a spoiler warning here and now. Mm. This is full spoilers. We are talking every detail, assuming you've read it. As an addendum to that, just like in News of the Century Past, there's going to be full spoilers for all New Century books up till now. We don't get into it too much, but the things that we learn in this book have major ramifications for a bunch of stuff that has been covered, looked over, and sometimes discarded as irrelevant a long time ago, and that sort of been turned over topsy-turvy, we probably are going to get into it more in a later News of the Century episode or some additional episode on this, but be warned, if you have not read all of the books up till now, 
you may end up getting spoiled on something. For Greg and I to kind of get into the weeds, we are going to talk about how it relates to books past, present, future of New Century, because this feeds into a lot. So I know some of the community have read this book without having read other ones. So if you are averse to spoilers in later books, then maybe get out now. I'm honestly thinking that we might sit down with some of the people who have read this before some of them and talk with them, because I would love to hear what their perspective on it is. But here's a little bit of music. Uh, Greg put on some uh, Vampire Killer from Castlevania now. on the other side this is a seth origin book (laughs) okay before we proceed further i think that we absolutely know what needs to happen here i shall leave you as you left me as you left her marooned for all eternity in the center of a dead planet buried alive buried alive Sure! <laughs> I mean, she can't keep getting away with this. You can't keep getting away with it! Okay, so here, for those listeners, which is mostly going to be Alex, but will, I guess, be a few other people that have read the book by the time, there are some other people that are going through it much slower than either of us are. Certainly you. You read it in an afternoon. I read it far quicker than I thought I would, and at the same time, I thought I was taking my time with this. I started reading this the second I woke up, before I even commuted to work on the Friday it was released. So I Mm -hmm. was up at like 5 a.m., which is when I normally up in order Mm -hmm. to like take a shower and get in my car and drive to the the subway station Mm -hmm. and get to work by a certain point. But I read like a couple of chapters before even getting into the car. By the time I was done, it was around noon at work, which means that I read the entire thing with breaks. I took multiple breaks throughout reading this. I read the goddamn thing in seven hours. My God. That's how compelling this book is. Yeah. Um, But more importantly, first of all, Alex was very cagey on a number of things, including... Was this going to be a sequel to Let Them Go? We find out in the first pages, yes, it's absolutely a sequel to Let Them Go. Because Greg, it's from Rebecca's perspective. Greg, line one was a surprise. Yes. What the fuck? He can't keep getting away with this. I, by the way, I know everyone who was there for this is like cool with it and everything. I still feel bad. I put off a screen cap of page one on the Discord thread as a sort of, hey, I'm starting to read this. I didn't actually look at the page before I did that. And Alex just quickly came in and was like, no, 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 spoilers, Toby, spoilers. And I was just like, okay, I'll get rid of it because trusting that 
I, I didn't realize and I thought like, hey, it's the first page that's inviting and everything. And it was only after I read it and it was like, oh, wow. Yeah, really? Pay, like Line one has a reveal. Okay. Mm. Okay. Yeah, we're no. reading this kind of book. Okay. I'm in for this ride. <laughs> there was a reason I pulled out the Goro Majima fucking gif. Holy shit. Yes, exactly. But I say my... that a lot of times as this book goes on. Mm-hmm. This... But on top of that, you remember like two years ago when mm-hmm. you and I covered um, Nightfall of the Wendigo, which is now considered a trilogy, part of a trilogy with this yes! book. Yes, and it's up to you whether this is the last part of it or the middle part of it. We will get into a discussion about that. <laughs> but my point is, is that one of the things I remember being very frustrated about is that Seth is dead and we would never know what his story was. And I remember- Turns out Al- we did. Well, see, Alex always knew what his story was. The question is, were yeah. we going to get that information? Look, that like, that, all that of much stuff- is clear now. That much is clear that the bastard had a plan this entire time. Yes, Alex, I am going to spend the entire duration of the session cursing you out and praising you at the same time. Deal with it. That's just how I'm rolling. By the way, I, am I blowing out the mic? I feel like I'm blowing out the mic. <laughs> I think you're doing fine. I, I, I won't know until I actually get into the edit, but you, <laughs> Alex is already thoroughly warned that this particular podcast episode will be very explicit on the expletives part of the story here. Look, uh, I'm I'm so unfocused. It's because every all the thoughts are firing off. It's my synapses are never quite as sharp and exploding as when I've just finished a new century book. I remember at one point Alex saying, "Hey, if there's one thing you wanted to know about Seth, let me know what it is, and I'll see if I can work it into a future book." Now, I don't know what he meant by any of that because I also know. This was not a book he originally had planned. He decided, based on other stuff that he was covering, that he wanted to write uh, an actual vampire-based book. And this is what he fucking did with it. I, I find it astonishing to think that this was never going to be, that there was a version of this that was never going to be a New Century book. That may or may not have been a fake-out. We won't know unless Alex says one way or the other. But as it turns out, there is a reason why he ended up writing Castle of the Moon the way he did. We'll get into it in the finale. The the backstory might have worked its way in somewhere, Mm -hmm. but if Alex always had it in mind, like the one person that would actually know what Seth's story was, was Seth, and those memories had been taken by Yagana. We mentioned this at one point, that there is no way that Yagana would let go of this information without extracting some kind of a toll. And it's like, is that a toll that we're willing to pay? We know how deals with Yagana work out. Mm-hmm. One could almost argue that Yagana is working through Alex here. Oh, so, so you, you wanted want to know, know Seth's story. story. Mm-hmm. Well, well, the price is, is I'm going to put you through the emotional and mental, mental fucking, fucking ringer using, using your, your favorite, favorite thing. thing. A new, new century, century novel. novel. Fuck's sake. Beware of what you ask for. But that also works really well into the final moments of this story, where mm. Yagana not only takes the memories of 
Seth slash Magwitch slash Vincent fucking Penrose and Rebecca. Called it. Called <laughs> okay. it. I, I, well, okay, we're going to get into that in a second. But <laughs> my point is that she oh, yeah, also. News of the century, aka we're going to get to that in a second. <laughs> <laughs> I, I like your idea potentially of having a second news of the century where we might bring someone else on to talk about all this. There is enough meat here that I wouldn't mind actually doing a second show where we talk more about this book because it is fucking dense, both yes. cognitively and emotionally. Also, but I apologize to Greg. Like he he kept asking, you know, we can push this uh, date of recording this, like further back if you want to. It's like, no, 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 I can do this. And to be fair, I did do it an hour and a quarter later than I had initially laid out. But I got here all the same. So if time is condensed and short, I wanted to at least record today to get this, this energy yeah, okay, on that's recording. I, and, I, I get you wanting yeah. that energy. This is, this is honestly the energy that we always tend to bring to news of the century specifically. So mm -hmm. waiting too long doesn't work the same way. Then we actually have to punch ourselves with like caffeine in order to get that same, you know, yeah. jitter yeah. thing going on there. And you know, if it, if it wasn't going to be today, I was going to find a way to just like talk with you at midnight my time. I I don't yeah. care. I it's happening anyway. We're here. It's new century. There's hot vampire sex. Get used to it. <laughs> to to finish my earlier thought, Yagana took all of Rebecca's journal pages, which is not the entirety of this story. Some of it we experience through things that Rebecca wasn't there for, such mm -hmm. as Magwitch's experiences prior to the events of the book, as well as everything that Brea went through in the labyrinth beneath the uh, castle. Mm. Beneath, no, beneath one castle that, no. no one will know that now. No one will know that now. Like, this isn't a story that Raven could go on to write. This is mm. a story that now Yagana holds in its entirety. And that fucking messes with me, man. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Alex heard, like, our entire thing about Yagana and just the idea of, like, oh, man, just how much it, she preys on us and we just feel deeply unsettled by everything that Yagana collects and just how you specifically, I always joke about, oh, Yagana, Greg's favourite character. And <laughs> Alex thought, I know how I'm going to mess with this fucker. <laughs> Alex messed with me on multiple levels. So, well, messed with us on multiple levels, some of which are intentional, some of which I'm not so sure. We're going to get into one of the big ones, the one okay, that I'm putting a penny in the jar every time we say we're going to get into. Let's well, let's get into it. <laughs> well, what I want to do at least for this recording is yeah. start with let's talk about how we felt about the book in absentia of everything else, just like the meat that's on the page. Mm. And then we're going to get into all of the, the larger red, implications. bloody, juicy meat. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So, mm. honestly, having now experienced this book in its entirety, and given that there is a lot of vampire media out there that I have not partaken of i've never seen interview with the vampire all the way through i've only seen little pieces of it i mm. haven't seen all of castlevania I oh you will seen... need to yeah exactly <laughs> I, and... I haven't seen nocturne the new series with um uh with richter but uh i can at least 
speak to the qualities of uh, the original series. Mm. I I know the arc of Bram Stoker's Dracula because that mm. was one of those classic books that someone made a graphic novel of that was accessible to kids. That one of those ones that I read in my mom's old doctor's office. So mm. I know the arc of the story with Dracula and Jonathan and Mina Harker and all that sort of thing like that. But I've never seen the original with Christopher Lee. I didn't see the one that was done in the 90s. There was a lot of stuff that this story is borrowing from that I don't have the complete context for. So most of what I'm working with is New Century itself, but a lot of the few clear influences, and there are so many influences dotted all over the place. To, mm. Like, at one point, we both clued into the whole final words of Chapter 2, where we can just imagine Countess Sylvania sitting on the bed, covered in her ex's gore, and talking the same way that Saruman did. We have work to do. Yeah, 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 yeah. This weaves all this imagery and concepts of a hundred different sources of influence and some of which came to mind for me that I that would be on Alex's radar things like how the character Mendeley or Mandalay we're gonna have conversations about how it's pronounced Alex listening to me say this I'm butchering the pronunciation aren't I Mandalay Mandalay I'm going with Mandalay for now is it with an A or an E I forget an A I think it's with an E I <laughs> Literally. I mean, it's at the end of, like, her... Yeah. The end of her name has an E-Y, it, but at the beginning... Like, it's Mandur, E-R-L-E-Y. Yeah, I'm going to go with Mandalay or Mandalay. I don't know where that... This is the second time, actually, that they've given a female character a more masculine-sounding name, much more like Mortimer. The only Mandalay name drop that I remember is specifically from Deus Ex, who's the boss of J.C. Denton and is kind of this annoying bureaucrat and everything like that. Manderly, the vampire lady, is nothing like that. No. Um, <laughs> and she is absolutely the kind of person that we love to hate, even if mm -hmm. she only gets a few key moments of, of um, screen time. I definitely feel like Manderly is going to come up somewhere else, especially with the epilogue. The Castle Luna feels so empty mm. although there is clearly stuff going on behind the scenes like how is all of the various bits and pieces being laid out for the guests uh, unless they have a you know beauty and the beast style like lumiere is arranging everything while we can't see it and it's just like be a guest be a guest and all of that or it's just a case of like there are other inhabitants of the castle, we just never see them, and that's business yeah, by no, design. I think that very clearly, Manderley makes a reference to some of those other people, but we don't actually see them, and I'm suspecting it's because Countess Sylvania specifically wants to... She's courting these people, mm. all of them on some level, Magwitch, Rebecca, and Brea. And I get the feeling like she is trying to control the situation enough to get mm. them to say yes. And if Sylvania revealed some of her earlier hmm, converts, that might get in the way. Manderley already kind of stirred the pot up enough with her mm. behavior. 
for for you and I, like with the the helmet design, we described her as Crowmauler to start mm. with. <laughs> Not quite as terrifying as Crowmauler. No. I, I suspect that Manderley is appropriately beautiful. Like if Countess Sylvania is meant to make us think of Lady Dimitrescu, then mm. Manderley might be one of her. Was it her sisters or daughters? Her daughters. Yeah, her daughters. Her daughters. Okay. Yeah, I can yeah. see that. Uh, and and they also have this sort of like uh, l- less sort of regal, and they have a bit more of the snipping quality about them as they exactly. f- uh, throw taunts at you. It, there's a, there's a character that I recall in our uh, Castlevania Dynasty show that I recorded with Alex and Sharon that I recall Alex describing as. A term I was not familiar with uh, before Alex introduced me to it, a brat, uh, <laughs> not in the traditional sense of the use of the word. And no, I will not uh, get, expand on the <laughs> meaning of that because I suspect I will blush enough over the course of talking about this book. Yeah, but... <laughs> this but, book yeah. is like the really intensely sexual stuff doesn't come until part two, but even some of the stuff in that opening with the exact words that Alex uses to describe Sylvania's encounter with Lucifer is just like, oh boy. Mm. Let's, let's talk about that opening for a second there because that sets the stage perfectly. Oh, so okay. good. So, obviously, first there's the prologue, which Mm -hmm. is what informs us to begin with that this is a story where Rebecca is our primary protagonist. It's a strange one, because she's our protagonist, and yet I would say she's more an observer. It's strange. She's simultaneously... She's along for the ride, but she does participate and enact enough active change in key moments that I think that the story benefits with her being present, but she is derailed from her journey to come with them on this. But yeah, anyway, I'm getting well, distracted. She, she, to, to talk a little bit about that, she's a little bit of leap on the wind buffeted mm. between a number of very powerful personalities. Like mm. in comparison to everybody else, in theory, Rebecca sits at the kitty table when you're comparing Sylvania, Brea, Magwitch and even Jophiel to a certain extent. But one of the things that the book keeps on getting into is that that doesn't mean that she's powerless. And she contemplates, does she have the agency? Does she have the power to say the right thing in order to turn the course of events? And by the end of it, I think that we see that's the arc that we are now aware that certain key characters are setting out on is set by Rebecca saying the right thing. Did you ever play Dragon Age 2? No, I didn't. Okay. I'm relatively certain that Alex did, but I know that he liked the Mass Effect games more. Mm-hmm. One of the significant components of Dragon Age 2, as you play your character, which is a male or female, but is going Hawk. to be called Hawk regardless, in the city of Kirkwall, where he comes to rest after being driven out because of the events of the first game with his family, 
There are major events that happen in each of the three acts of the game that he does his best to influence, but almost every single time there is some form of calamity that occurs. And in each of these circumstances, Hawk can pick a side, or can try to resolve things through diplomacy, but they always fail to prevent said calamity, only able to shape how bad it gets and potentially who gets hurt as a result. It is on some level a Kobayashi Maru narrative, asking the player how they play a hero that cannot completely save the day, because powerful people on both sides refuse to stand down. Mm. That very much feels like what Rebecca is trying to deal with here. She, like can, she can do her best but trapped between these intense personalities with their agendas, there is only so much she can do. But some of the best parts of this book, and I mentioned this as I went along, is that Rebecca, regardless of whether it is wise or not, cannot stop being herself. Mm. She feels the need to speak at key parts of the story, and that makes all the difference. I think she dares to speak where others would not. Mm. And in doing so, that is what makes her who she is. And Mm. that's part of the reason why I love her as a character. Clearly James has a type because Abigail is like this. Also, they are different characters. And one of Abigail's biggest issues is sometimes speaking when she should have remained silent Rebecca is more restrained than that, more British in sensibility. But even without the events of New Century to play off of, we know that in an alternative timeline, Rebecca and James ended up together. At least one alternative timeline, anyway. I think why this book has as strong a reaction in me as it does, in addition to all of the obvious reasons, and just my investment. This is, I would have to say, one of the most tragic books in the entire... Mm. Like, I'm struggling to think of one that is quite so tragic as this, and not without hope. Arlington sort of is on that level, but Mm. it's dealing with human forces coming into conflict with each other. And this mm. book is about inhuman forces coming into conflict with each other. Very good, yeah. See, see, this is why I'm glad that like there is a little bit of a discrepancy in the time frame of our experiences with it, because you have much more sort of cogent, fully formed thoughts on this. And I, I've had more time to chew on it. I'm sure that there will be things that I hadn't thought of later on down the line, which is, again, potentially why I want us to record a second thing on this getting back to what we were saying what i was talking about with the beginning of it and the very sort of legendary aspect to those opening chapters with sylvania Mm. Mm. Um, because it's all written without it being a first-hand account or the sense of right up until the end but yes yeah but i mean that's sort also sort of the way legends slash fairy tales are often written in -hmm. terms of like they detail encounters, but not always everything that was said. So Mm. that gives it a very specific feel and a flavor. Yes. And 
in a series that I think Alex is always drawn to spoken dialogue, the dialogue between characters and everything like that. The first spoken words in it are only when Sylviana is encountering Lucifer. That is the moment where the words are finally spoken because it it was in the uttering of them. It was in the contract being spoken and formed between them. Although it did have one brief moment where it moved from her perspective to Peter's perspective. Yeah, Peter because we, uh... because we get to see inside his head when she approaches being like having very selfish thoughts and everything like that. It may well be that we know what he was thinking because Sylvania has, has, yeah, exactly. She has the mind magic at that point. Uh, And so therefore that primal experience is now etched on her own brain because it was her first feeding. Mm -hmm. That whole story, did you ever see any of the extra history stuff that was put out when Dan Mm -hmm. Floyd was still doing the narrating? Yeah. This borrowed not heavily, but like a few key points from Dan Floyd narrating the early experience of Catherine before she was great. Uh. And let me say right now, that does not take away from the experience. If anything, Countess Sylvania being an alternative version of Catherine the Great really sets the tone for who she is as a person. I wonder if that means that the tyrant known as Vigo the Carpathian didn't exist in her world. Nah, maybe she ate him. That because the whole thing of Catherine first meeting her, you know, would-be husband, Duke Peter, the whole experience of him being very unimpressive and less interested in a relationship and more interested in playing with servants as if they were yeah just like people that he could move around that whole experience obviously it was borrowed probably in part from the actual history but the way these chapters tell it reminds me very much of dan floyd's narration of catherine's experience in her bedchamber with peter i have a question Mm. is there a possibility or perhaps even a likelihood that Lucifer was Yugana. See, you mentioned that towards the end of your reading. I honestly don't know. I don't think so. I'm going to get into this question deeper later, but not now, because it would interrupt the flow too much. Mm. We know that Yagana can lie. That was a huge component of the ending. Mm -hmm. But I suspect... That it was probably, and this is going to be part of the larger thematic stuff that we're going to talk about. I think it was probably just some powerful creature that thought that they were Lucifer. Probably because somebody else told them that they were Lucifer. Mm. If, there's a, if there's a major component of the theme in this story that Sylvania highlights towards the end is that, again, regardless of what world we're talking about... We don't know if capital G gods actually exist. What we do know is, is that powerful creatures create more powerful creatures. Mm. Lucifer created Sylvania. Magwitch was a combination of what 
he gained from Sylvania, but also what he gained from Yagana. And also how Seth was affected by consuming Jophiel. More on that later. Mm-hmm. And one could argue that on some level, Seth was potentially perpetuating that cycle with Rao. Fuck's sake. Another big thing that was going on here was that as you were going through your reading and I had already read the book, I was in the middle of editing the second part of chapter 39 and just mm-hmm. reflecting on, oh, yeah, we're asking all these questions about Seth. Oh, no. Oh, my God. All of these questions are answered now. Well, not all of them, <laughs> but a good portion of them. The most so, dated episode we've ever done. <laughs> well, I mean, the, the episode is going to be released before this recording, obviously. But I had to edit that episode very carefully so as to imply... Yes, there might be answers to these questions. No, I'm not going to tell you when we knew these answers, because if I did, that's going to reveal that they happened specifically in Castle of the Moon. Yeah, no, and I, don't I want to do that. I, I think, tread carefully, and I'm going to have a careful ear when listening to the recording of that one, and I'll let you know if okay. I can tell from what you're saying. It's like, I think this is a little too easy, because, yeah, <laughs> this one, it's important that you keep who it's about secret because mm-hmm. keep it secret keep it safe mm-hmm. but ooh, i mean I, I could not believe how long it took me to realize brea's name mm. the mm. proximity between that and Breoth. i i god damn it so here's <laughs> here's the thing at different parts of the book we started suspecting that magwitch was seth yeah i clued early to just being like What's the likelihood of someone having an experience with the Wendigo virus that's so close to how we know Seth works and have it not be the same person? I believe in coincidences. Coincidences happen every day. But I don't trust coincidences. Mm. And then someone mentioned, oh... He's got orange in his eyes, so I'm immediately going to the cover of Castle of the Moon to be like, oh yeah, I didn't look closely at that before. And then I'm seeing the sideburns, the very specific Magwitch sideburns, which reminded me of, say, Victor Creed, Sabretooth from Marvel. Yeah, and he's, now he's very much got a combination of Wolverine and like Victor Creed, Sabretooth energy to him. Sort like there's definitely some Logan aspects to that, but very specifically, uh, Magwitch has these spikier, more wild sideburns that are specific to Creed. Because for all that you can right. say about Logan, he tends to keep, with the, with the exception of his little horns, he tends to keep his facial hair a little bit more well groomed, I guess you could say. <laughs> but my point is that I was going to the picture of Seth and be like, okay. His skin is very dark. Does he have the same kind of sideburns? I think he does. Mm. Well, I'll be very interested in seeing where this goes. Um, but, okay, now we're getting into a little bit of the crossover stuff. Focus on the story. Uh, yeah. mm. We I, were I, in the legend part. We were in the think. legend part, setting up Sylvania. Sylvania mm. is an incredibly well-done character. Like, yes. she is kind of the epitome of the tragic villain Mm. in terms of somebody that just wants to make the world better but can't prevent from being a monster in the process. 
Yes. And that it's is the be careful in fighting monsters lest you become one yourself sort of. Well, well I mean, arc. it's not just that, because I think that there's a running theme in all of New Century in general, which highlights on one side, you know, people in general are kind of awful. Like the, the mm -hmm. um, men in black quote. The person is smart. People are dumb, panicky, dangerous animals, and you know it. But by the same token, you have to tread a very fine line. If you want to be someone that wants to change the world for the better and have the power to do it. Because when mm -hmm. you have that level of power, it can be very easy to overreach. Mm. She's a supremacist. The very concept of a super soldier will always trouble people. It's that warped aspiration that led to Nazis, to Ultron, to the Avengers. Hey, those are friends you're talking about. The Avengers, not the Nazis. So Carly is radicalized, but there has to be a peaceful way to stop her. The desire to become a superhuman cannot be separated from supremacist ideals. Anyone with that serum is inherently on that path. She will not stop. She will escalate until you kill her or she kills you. Maybe you're wrong, Zemo. The serum never corrupted Steve. Touche. But there has never been another Steve Rogers, has there? One of the reasons this book resonates and feels like it prompts such a sharp reaction for me is that because I remember talking so passionately with Alex and Sharon about the animated Castlevania show. Mm. And it's one of my favorite recordings I've done with them just because it kind of in the discussion of it, I realized just how much of the show and its characters really did hit me in a part of my heart and soul where I thought this is going to stay with me. This is definitely going to stay with me. I feel so much of the ideas that we touched on in that recording in this book. Mm. And I don't mean to suggest that I have some sort of hand in how this book turned out. I don't think so at all. It's just, it feels like it is the next part of a conversation that I remember fondly and passionately, and that this is something that has followed on from that. It's aspects of how the characters are discussing things. It is as if humanity is on trial mm. in the same way that you feel that in many moments of the Castlevania Dynasty show, that there are so many conversations about that all-important question of what is a man? Mm. And I, I can't believe that Alex used two parts of that mimetic mm. Castlevania speech and really use them to full effect. I can't believe it, but we'll get to that in a bit. In response yes. to some of what you were just saying there a moment ago, it's supremely ironic, and that's one of my flaws there. I keep using the word ironic when what I mean is synchronistic. To me, mm -hmm. that you mentioned a moment ago that you don't want to be so big-headed. So bold. So yeah. bold, yes. You don't want to be so bold as to suggest that this book is... I don't want to claim ownership over something that Alex wrote. This yes. is his heart of darkness that we are seeing here, and it's glorious. And by the way, Alex, I'm sorry, you got some of your kinks in here. 
I mean, I'm uh, here for it, but you uh, know, I just thought I'd let you know. <laughs> let's not dive too deep into that. The Don't whole thing about using save me. <laughs> no, no, it's not not about that. It's just about like being careful about using the book to talk about the author. That's right. that's a line that we don't want to cross too thoroughly here. Um, yeah, we, we don't want to insert ourselves. We don't want to presume either. No, but what you were just saying a moment ago in terms of feeling like this book is a direct response to conversations that you've had with Alex, I was also thinking the same goddamn thing. Not the same conversations, but mm. like specifically the elements of memory. Memory is the key. And how that plays into the beginning and end of this book. I don't think that I've mentioned it enough, but, you know, you remember that my favorite movie is fucking Memento. So that's going to be a conversation we're going to have in a little bit. My point is, is that... If we remember it. <laughs> yeah, if we remember it. I'm not going to let you forget, mister. Okay, I don't know where that energy comes from. All of a sudden, uh, yeah, all right. This this is just a sign. Look, this is news. We never know what energy is going to come up. We could be fearful. We could be excited. We could be randy because of all the vampire sex that's going on. You don't know. We don't know. God damn it, Parker. Get me pictures of Sylvania. No. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I'm going to make it. This is the first new century book that has actually prompted a burning resolve in me to do fan art of several moments in this. Mm. I am going to do a drawing of that crescent-shaped stained glass window. God damn it. On the other hand, and you, I know that you've been playing the game in the background too, there's some direct thematic correlation between some of the stuff that Castle of the Moon gets into and some of the stuff that Spider-Man 2 gets into. Look, Greg, I'm playing through it as fast as I can. <laughs> I was reading this, to, like, I'm doing it minutes ago. We will record our pictures of Spider-Man. I'm recording <laughs> my pictures of, like, sexy giant vampires right now. Okay, okay, no, no, no. I'm, I'm just saying that, that there is definitely... <laughs> in terms of <laughs> power and responsibility, it's not the same thing. It's still, it's vampires and oh. angels and fucking goddamn Seth, but Rem still. Remember what Uncle Brea said, with great power comes great Catholic responsibility. <laughs> <laughs> okay, uh, finishing up my earlier thought, we should accept responsibility for the fact that through the Windor specifically has been an influence on future books that Alex writes because he uses all of this for fuel. Not just the conversations with you and me, not just episodes of Through the Windor itself, but elements from School of Movies. As he was writing this and kept reflecting on specific moments in history, I was thinking to myself, this ties in a little bit with all of the work that he'd been doing with Willow, all of those historical-based movies that they were watching, mm, and that could be... That, that makes that so much sense. Yes, exactly. Mm. Um, it, it's, it's a combination of everything, so it is not too much of us to say that he took a little bit of nugget from conversations with us or anybody else and mm. used it as a, part of, as a component in this book. That's okay. just natural. 
while we're on the subject of us and the book and Alex, I, I kind of need to like talk to you about this because it would feel weird not to address uh-huh. it. Was that us in the I, window? I did not think about that until you mentioned it, but now that you say it, the fact that it was very specifically Lynx's makes me think that yes, it was it was Grex and Tobias. Because we were looking through the window <laughs> and also just the time frame of it. It sounded as if our Lynx's weren't exactly wearing anything that was particularly like distinguished in like their clothing or anything. But you had to remember this was 75, which mm. is like a decade and some change before when Panther Soul would take place. Mm. So who knows what arcing journeys our characters had between then and now. I may write the fan art, the, the fan fiction of what the lives of Grex and Tobias are if Alex doesn't do it himself, which after this book, I don't know. He may be threading like little nuggets of where these characters are going. Who knows? All of a sudden, I'm picturing the Lynx leader like out on a walk with his shaman, and the two of them look up in the air and see this shimmer, go, Tobias, now there's something you don't see every day. Hmm. We should uh, tell everyone about it, yes. <laughs> But in, like, weekly installments and, like, <laughs> you know, share that with other people. And we should take a really long time when they get onto uh, some sort of steam-powered contraption or something like that. Yes, yes. <laughs> We've since been sadly informed that since these were lynxes on the wrong continent, it couldn't have been our XP characters. Missed opportunity, but you never know. Maybe Grex met Tobias on Walkabout. I got derailed from this thought earlier. As much as I love Sylvania as a tragic villain, antagonist, anti-hero, I don't even know how to describe her. Protagonist. Protagonist. (laughs) I honestly think that my favorite character of this book is Brea. And I don't know how to feel about the fact that my favorite character in this book is a Catholic vampire. It's because she embodies, she walks the talk. Mm. She is someone who is fallible. The fact that we see her anger and her straining to keep a lid on all of this, it's what if these various areas of faith, and especially Catholicism, they will preach an ideal version of what they should be or what they should strive to be. Mm-hmm. And this, this is someone who believes in it so strongly and does it and does it from a sense of not just her own place in all of it and the result of her own actions, but because it is right to do so. She practices the faith because she believes in it and fears she is God-fearing, but she also does it because she knows that it is right. I could argue this point because moral absolutism can be its own can of worms, which can also do harm. But overall, Brea is honestly the most selfless of the group. Yes, even more than Rebecca. Selflessness can have its own toxicity, But on the other hand, the harm is usually reserved for the person being selfless. Another topic for a future Spider-Man show. 
it's hard not to respect her even if you don't respect the faith because faith alone does not make someone a good person it is what you do with what you have been taught mm. and it's fascinating to see magwitch and sylvania helpless in the face of that not mm. just in terms of the critical she decision she makes to flee from what she is offered but also just the fact that she is willing to suffer for her ideals and suffering for ideals that we can't really critique her on because she is trying to avoid doing bad things and we want her to avoid doing bad things even when it causes her more pain because we understand what she is struggling with inside mm -hmm. But more specifically, and I feel like I should have seen this coming, but I was I was hoping against it. She is rewarded by the icon of her faith, quote unquote, rewarded in exactly the way I was afraid she would be. Mm. Someone that is supposed to be the epitome of that faith still sees her as demonic. And that's the big danger with moral absolutism and the tribalism of faith. Hell, not even just faith. There are elements of tribal blindness in something as non-sectarian as Elemental, which I watched just last night. Jophiel... I am not familiar with Jophiel as an archangel. The one encounter I've ever had with that name was specifically one of the final seasons of Lucifer. And in that one... The angel that played Jophiel was masculine and a fucking bro. Like, this was meant to be a joke character angel. Someone that just wanted to party and have fun and thought the idea of, like, the go-go dancers at Lucifer's club was, like, high entertainment and loved booze and everything like that. The actual depiction of Jophiel is, in fact, female and does, in fact, have that burning sword. She is depicted with that in iconic imagery and everything like that. So therefore, the sword that she is wielding in the book is actually part of the mythology. She is not considered to be a force of war or anything like that. Unlike, say, Michael, supposedly associated with beauty and art. Although one source has her in charge of the choir of angels called the Cherubim. But... And that's, I think, part of the whole, oh, we weren't expecting this kind of behavior from a Jophiel, and that's what makes her betrayal of Brea so much worse. You were keyed into that whole thing that was happening with Brea trying to save the angel from the tree and the way that Jophiel's words bit into what was going on which were very much a signifier of the fact that Brea was going to be killed for her kindness. Mm, mm, I, I did, and the fact that the piece of iconography that is persisting throughout other depictions of Jophiel is this burning sword yeah. is probably the thing that feels appropriate to the character we see in this, mm. because a burning sword in the context of being associated with an archangel suggests two things. One, 
that it is a fiery faith. It is something that is indicative of a faith that burns with an intensity. And secondly, that that faith is channeled into a weapon, Mm. which means that it is almost as if the Archangel is an embodiment of crusades, an embodiment of violence enacted on those that the holder of that blazing fiery sword deems to be the ungodly. They persecute others, they pierce others with their faith that has been harnessed into a weapon and there is something about that just just feels wholly antithetical to what the entire philosophy and doctrine of these religious faiths such as Christianity, such as Catholicism ought to be. It is wrong. It is deeply wrong. And that is why this is one of the most reprehensible characters in this entire series and why as you see Magwitch descend on Mm. this fucker, you can't help but be whipped up in a frenzy. It is almost as if you, the reader, are part of his pack of Piccolici, the the bar guest, the Wendigo. It's that idea of how in several pieces of fiction when you see these things that are entities that go beyond your own understanding, questions of, is it right for us to challenge this? Is it not just that this is the way things ought to be? Or how do we fight something like this? And what it comes down to, and I know that this is a phrase that has stuck with Alex in a piece of media he's discussed in the past, which is in It, Stephen Mm. King's It, when they discuss what Pennywise is, the creature that it is, is it kills kids. And we know that that's wrong, Mm. that you cannot abide something that would do this. And Rebecca being that human perspective who has just got so much shit thrown at her by the end of this book. Holy crap. Mm. Like, I do not blame her for sort of just wanting to have this entire thing erased from her memories. Like, I need to sleep, please. Mm. I, it's why I joked on the Discord that I can only, uh, I can almost see her just going like, if one more thing happens that just completely redefines the way I see the world, I'm going to lose it. And then Yagana just comes up in her chicken house like, hello! (laughs) (laughs) And then Rebecca goes like, oh great, this is happening. And then suddenly Magwitch just opens up his duffel bag and a manticore comes out. It's like, I'm not even going to question what that is. I I went on a tangent. I apologize. No, you you went on a tangent. I'm just trying to remember. I had a thought, and now I'm I'm trying to recapture it here. We were talking about Brea, and and then I went on my thing. There is nothing more dangerous than someone that feels righteous. Yes. And therefore, anything that they do is justified. Mm. And the thing is, that's true whether we're talking about Cantal Sylvania or Jophiel. Right. Therefore, the two of them coming back into conflict is naturally, like, they've done it before, they're doing it again, they're just continuing to repeat the cycle. Mm. Is one of them better than the other? Are they both horrible? We don't know what Jophiel's done, but as you pointed out a moment ago, we know what the fucking Crusades were like. We know about all the atrocities that can be done in quote-unquote God's name. But the other thought that I had... And again, 
you you were keying into some of this here for someone that has never really played the game that has only seen other people play it and uh-huh. learned about it from videos on such and everything like that mm-hmm. i don't know if alex has seen these videos either i don't know if he knows about this game okay but, i'm i'm anxious to hear what, where this is going but the number of times that i thought of fear and hunger as a result of this book Specifically, just like, first of all, there's sexuality here, and some of it is intense and beautiful, but some of it is perverse, much like how it's partially depicted in that game. Also, the fact that Magwitch and his Prickalichi consume Jophiel at the end of that fight, just like, oh, holy shit. Yeah. I'm just saying. This also, book does not pull any punches. Also, isn't the god that is meant to kind of embody... Like, I, I do not... I am not an expert on the lore of fear and hunger, but isn't the god that is the embodiment of lust and life and vitality called Sylvain? Yes. You are thinking correctly. Where is the etymology? Sylviana, I, Sylvain... Where, I don't know. Is there a thought that this is going? I don't know. <laughs> I would have to look into the etymology... The earliest possible reference could be Etruscan god Selvins of Woodlands and Boundaries, which later might have been appropriated by the Romans into the god Sylvanus, later renamed Pan. The Latin word Silva means forest, but there is another Latin word Sylvester, which means wild, untamed, a word that could definitely be associated with the Countess. But for all I know, this could be a Warhammer reference, since that's the realm of the vampire counts, or even a sly wink at the Marx Brothers movie Duck Soup. The etymology is fuzzy. It could just be that Alex arrived at the same location, the same way the creator of Fear and Hunger did. Also, Fear and Hunger 2 begins on a train. Our story... Begins on a train, yes. Mm. I am watching through the final gamers uh The videos. final gamer always, always has a one. <laughs> That's right. I have activated gamer mode which increases my gaming ability by a full 4%. <laughs> if people are confused, watch regular Eyepatch Wolf, which is Super Eyepatch Wolf's channel for his various streams that he does, playing through Fear and Hunger. They are very entertaining, and <laughs> it gives you an experience of Fear and Hunger that has a appreciated degree of separation and removal from some of the more intense moments of it partly because john is a lovely cinnamon roll slash gremlin who just takes away some of the harsher elements just from his presence and also because he is playing a censored mod of that which like is designed to allow people to stream it because as he says at the beginning of each of those streams, there is a non-zero percent chance of dicks appearing in them. <laughs> but anyway, coming back to why we invoke the comparison, it's because the idea that a key mechanic in that game, as is indicated, is 
a the idea of your sanity and mm. there are very many moments where i think that that is the pool of resource that rebecca is continuously striving to like keep in check and keeping your hunger in check which is exactly what brea is doing throughout it she is running on fumes and mm, I thought mm. that was such a brilliant mechanic. I said this at one point that New Century is excellent at introducing remarkable abilities into its characters, but finding creative limiters that you can put on those abilities. And with Brea, our vampire that we know is absolutely on side, who has these remarkable, super speedy abilities you think like, oh, that feels like it would solve so many problems. And then you immediately see, oh, this is very draining for a person who has been deliberately fasting. Huh. <laughs> Not to mention, like, there's a whole, again, it feels like a weird crossover, seeing as I'm almost sure that most of this is stuff that Alex came up with outside of this particular game. I don't remember when the Fear and Hunger original Super Patchable video came out, but like you could draw a parallel between Magwitch and Ragnvaldr, the barbarian character. Yes. Rhea yes. and the child. You could even draw a parallel between Lagarde and Sylvania. Yes, there is definitely that. <laughs> and obviously, and here's the thing, like Fear and Hunger is a game that wears its influences on its sleeve as well. A lot of it is berserk, but with the mm. islings barked off. I, I don't know where we're heading with these comparisons. It's just that like you and I have been yeah, fascinated yeah. by the world that the iPatch Wolf video has exposed us to. And it's been quite remarkable to see something like this that just feels like it's drawing on some of these things. Like you know, I alluded earlier to there were things I read in this that I was pretty positive weren't sources of influence on uh, Alex, like how Mandalay the character that first came to mind was a particular character in the Kingdom Hearts games of all things, which is uh, Luxine, who is this member of the antagonistic group Organization 13. And I'm not going to go into too much detail here because we're here for far too long as it is. Her personality is someone who deliberately enjoys hurting people mm. by jabbing at their vulnerabilities and her first and really quite best appearance in the series is in a game where Sora, Donald and Goofy, because yes, lest we forget that that is what Kingdom Hearts is about, are traveling through a castle in which all of their memories are being toyed with and at the end of it, their memories of their time in the castle are erased. Memory is the key. So, like... What a strange coincidence. Mm -hmm. But uh, Larkseed in that is playing with Sora's inability to remember something. And she's manipulating it. It's a whole thing. But mm -hmm. if you look up clips of her, and you may even include a bit, I'll see if I can find a good clip online of just her disposition. She's great. She is in that same ballpark as how Mandalay is someone you love to hate. It's someone where it's just like, oh, Fuck off, but also, I'm kind of enjoying your company. It's weird. Is is it a bad thing that I'm, I'm way more attracted to her now that she has the demon voice? She she can she she can torment me forever. It's 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 cool. 
Okay, let, let's talk about Manderley for a minute, but I also yeah. want to interject. Alejandra apparently just posted a picture of her on the New Century channel. She's got a physical copy of Castle of the Moon in her hands right now. Yes. So she's probably going to just down this book as quickly as I did. Uh, yeah, like, so no one's if, going to take as long as I did. I poured over every word of this thing. Um, but if <laughs> Wait, we do... that sounds wrong. Um, like... <laughs> But if we do another recording anytime soon, I vote that we bring Alejandra on because her takes on what's going on are going to be the most fascinating but because of her own chaos energy. Well, I hope that whet your fucking appetite because not only is there another hour of this already in the can talking about this book, not only are we likely to have another whole show on Castle of the Moon, but next weekend, we will be recording with Alejandra, who is going to be discussing her devouring of all 14 books of New Century over 2023, including Castle of the Moon, which she finished quicker than I did. It's going to be chaotic and epic. I can't wait. I'm sorry. Do I sound excitable? <laughs> I guess I am. Let me take it down a notch. Before we close out with some appropriate music, I want to add a more considered response as to whether Yagana had shape-changed into Lucifer and therefore was responsible for Sylvania's transformation. And my answer is, I still think no, but also I hope no. Something that I was seeing a lot over the last couple of years, starting with WandaVision, was this assumption that there was things going on that were the doing of Mephisto the equivalent of the devil in Marvel mythology. And it never was. Mephisto has yet to make an appearance anywhere in Phase 4, and I think for the better. The idea of this duology of good and evil is a limiting one, especially when good and evil is more complicated than a binary. I've often more preferred the dualism of selfishness and selflessness, which I remember specifically attributing at one point to the difference in tactics of Merlane and Yagana. But asserting that Yagana is the source of all the bad things in the New Century multiverse would be a bad one. It literally casts her in the role of Lucifer, and Merlane as the equivalent, therefore, of the Judeo-Christian god. And I think both of them deserve better than those limited roles. It makes them less human, even though Yagana herself is, I think, very far from human. The simple truth of the matter is we all do bad things for what we think are the right reasons, and it doesn't matter whose name we do them in. What matters are our actions as well as the results of those actions, and not who or what influenced us. As Mikey Newman likes to say, no one knows what they're doing, and even though Merlane and Yagana are playing games, there's far more of existence that is just chaos, and it's dangerous to assume that there is a plan. Because often, there's no plan. It's chaos. Be kind. Until next time, this is Henri Werner with Demons.
the voices, they're devouring my Am I going fucking crazy? Shaky hands, my heart is racing Or maybe it's just the world that we live in, yo They set expectations, they write all these rules and I'm sleeping, yeah, right Thank you. 